to the triune God, to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. We have honored you through our words, our singing, and now we submit ourselves to your word. Thank you for this sacred text. Thank you that we don't come to tell you what you should do, that we come week after week on this Sabbath to put our hearts and our minds in a position to receive humbly from you. So we do that again this morning. We pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Well, because I'm honored to be with you for two weeks, I get to do a mini-series. And before Ryan left, we had coffee, so this is approved by him. And by the way, he did not ask me to give a report on who showed up today, but you're all here, and I'm, I'm grateful for that, that y'all didn't skip out on the first Sunday that your pastor was gone, so thank you for that. But I presented to Ryan the idea of our identity in Christ. What does that mean? That's a huge topic, but I'm going to start it by putting up a graphic, if you would, a very familiar uh, sticky uh, name tag that we are all familiar with when we go into new places especially. This is our badge. We're used to filling these out. Uh, what's the first thing that socially we ask each other? Uh, what's your name? Typically followed by what do you do for a living? Or what school do you attend? And so if I were to ask you to fill this in this morning, not just with those items, but what about these? What's your role in your family? Are you a husband? Are you a wife? Are you a widow? Are you a widower? Grandma or grandpa? Some of us still, even as adults, we're still brothers and sisters to our siblings. We're still a son or a daughter. What would you write in there in terms of your own family role? Vocation is important. What would you put in there for the jobs that you've held, not just currently, but in the past? How about your ethnicity? A lot being talked about in the last three years about, I'm Irish, I'm Asian, Native American, or Swedish. How about your personality type? We're very familiar with the various assessments now that are available to us. Are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? Are you, what is, what is your number on the Enneagram? What is your uh, category in Myers-Briggs? All these different assessments that we take in our vocational lives. Our personality type could also be on there this morning. More fun, how about your hobby? I'm a quilter. I'm a musician. I love to garden. I love to mountain bike. I love to fish. All the variety of hobbies that bring great joy to us. You might want to put that on there. And the last one I'll mention, even though there's many more, what sports team do you root for? Are you a Husky? Are you a Cougar? Are you a Seahome Mariner or a Meridian Trojan? All of these things are monikers that help us shape our identity. And every morning when we wake up, 
we put on an identity that we want the world to see on that particular day. It influences the clothes that we choose to wear, the way we're going to style our hair, the way that we talk to people during the day. These are all things that help us put on our identity every morning. And now, in the last 20 years, it's what we post on social media, regardless of whatever platform you use. This has become a huge marker for how people try to shape their identity and what they want the world to see. It takes a lot of work to shape your identity every day and try to impress people or whatever your motivation is. And my premise for the next two weeks is that the gospel of Jesus Christ challenges all of the identities that we might use to fill in on any given day. In the last 50 years, we've seen a huge explosion during my lifetime of so-called self-help books that are all from a secular standpoint, trying to say, here's how you can enhance your life based on that kind of identity. In fact, our culture only preaches more and more the task of finding, creating, and protecting the identity that you choose. The gist is, you get to define that. Nobody else can tell you that that you have the right, because only you matter. The gospel challenges each of those ideas. If you know anything about the writings of the Apostle Paul, you know that his favorite phrase was, in Christ. We find this, it's a tremendous word study, uh, I, I submit that to you if you've never looked at the number of times that the apostle uses the term in Christ. This dominated his thinking. And most of his teaching came out of his understanding of what he used to be as a Pharisee who was persecuting the church. Now, being its key leader. And so he understood his identity in Christ. His favorite uh, phrase, 2 Corinthians 517, you've heard it thousands of times if you've been in church. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That was a core value and truth that the apostle preached and lived. And the apostles all understood this concept because they knew that a major identity change was to be expected when someone encountered Jesus. Because it had happened to each of them when Christ was resurrected. If you remember those stories, they were going back to what they used to do. That's why Jesus went to the Sea of Galilee and saw them going back to fishing. They had said, well, I guess that was an interesting three years now let's just get back to what we do for a living. And I love the appearances of Jesus before he ascended because now each of those encounters, he opened their eyes to see that now their identity had changed and they were living in light of the risen Christ. So this morning, I have chosen three encounters with Jesus from the Gospels 
that I believe illustrate really well this whole idea of the change of identity because of that encounter. Each of these could stand on its own in terms of a sermon, so I'm going to hit the highlights, but there's three of them that I've chosen. The first one is very familiar, again, to churchgoers, and that is what I call a woman who was looking for love in all the wrong places, to go back to the old country song, better known as the woman at the well. As we know, she was a mixed race, Samaritan, looked down upon by Jew and Gentile alike, and she was a relational train wreck. And when Jesus meets her at the well, he calls out her relational background. He says, you've had five husbands, and you're currently living with a man who is not your husband. That's not a good track record of commitment. She was a train wreck relationally. Let's read the scripture from John chapter 4. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus had already given her some understanding that he could bring healing to the relational train wreck. Jesus told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five, and the man you now have is not your husband. And then in humility, she says, what you have said is quite true. And I love the humility that's shown in the next phrase. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. And that was not just because Jesus knew that she had five husbands and was living with another man. I'm submitting the whole community probably knew that in a small town. However, she saw something in this man, in this encounter, and the rest of the scriptures go on to to explain that. But I just simply want to say that we know this was scandalous. If you put up the graphic, this was a scandalous idea for a man to be talking to a woman in public that wasn't related to him. And so right from the get-go, this is a scandalous thing. Both men and women would have rejected that picture. The obvious relational damage and the broken self-image of this woman that was relentless in trying to find her fulfillment in a relationship with a man. Her identity was defined by her ongoing need for that kind of a relationship. Now, all indications are that after this encounter, this woman became a Jesus follower. Later in the chapter, in verse 40, it says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of this woman's testimony. She was no longer ashamed to talk about her past. Now she was giving testimony of this encounter and how now the relational longing that had taken her down that train wreck 
of relationships was now being healed bit by bit. And other people began to follow Christ because of the testimony. She was honest about her sin in seeking something other than Christ to fill her life. And more importantly, she wanted something positive. She wanted living water, not the temporary fulfillment that even the good human love can bring us. I love this story. So our search for love needs to find itself in our identity in Jesus. Well, the second encounter, we're going to move to uh, the lame man by a pool in Bethesda. I visited this uh, place on a couple trips that my wife and I have made to Israel, and it's kind of neat to sit there and think about this whole scene, but here it is in the scriptures. There is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? I think one of the more strange questions that Jesus asked. This man has been disabled for 38 years. If you have been an invalid for that long or had any kind of physical infirmity, how can you not define your identity by that deformity? Go ahead and put the graphic up if you would. I love the picture just because it describes the compassion of Jesus. But everybody knew this guy, just like they all knew the woman at the well. Everybody knew that every day these folks would go to this pool thinking that somehow the medicinal uh, water would heal them. And I'm sure he became an object of pity. A quick aside, my wife and I have lived in Bellingham for 37 years. And one of my concerns with the growing visible poverty that we see on the streets of our city is that we can become callous to every person that we drive by at every stop sign and everything else. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything political about how to approach the problem of unsheltered folks. I'm simply saying that as followers of Jesus, we must guard ourselves from simply saying that poor individual and driving along. There's another parable that relates to that one. And so Jesus has this weird question, though. Do you want to get well? He is the most, he appears to be the most uncaring person in the city of Jerusalem. That sounds worse than having pity on somebody, doesn't it? To roll down your window at a stoplight here in town and just saying to the individual, hey, do you want to get well? So what's Jesus getting at? I think Jesus is going after the identity question. 
I think he's, and we know this from later in the text, but Jesus is saying, I could touch you and heal you right now physically, and all of a sudden your life would change, obviously, because of that. But I want to ask you a question about what is inside of you. I want to talk to you about what your true identity is apart from your infirmity. Jesus wanted to do something even more profound than physical healing. This suffering man needed to be raised from his dead spiritual state to a new spiritual life, just like all the rest of us. The greater gift would be spiritual wholeness. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, that all of us are sick. We're sick because of the infirmity of sin. And praise God, most in this room this morning have probably made that decision to turn. But if you have not, I invite you to consider what it is to offer your own sickness to Jesus. Because the question that he asked this man is the same question he has asked every single person that has lived on this planet. Do you want to get well? Well, the third encounter is, is the least known of the three that I've chosen. This one is an, uh, one of the 12 apostles, or disciples rather, and his name is simply Simon the Zealot. We know nothing about Simon the Zealot except he appears in two listings, one in the gospel and one in the book of Acts. So let's take a look at the one in Luke. When morning came, he called his disciples, this is Jesus, and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated as apostles. Simon, who he had named Peter, his brother Andrew, James and John. Okay, those are all ones we're familiar with. Now we get into Philip, Bartholomew, don't know much about that dude. Matthew, we know a lot about. Thomas, he's kind of infamous. James, the son of Alphaeus. And then we can skip over this guy. But here he is, Simon, who was called the Zealot. Judas, son of James, and then the infamous Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So Luke is giving us this listing of this man who is simply given the moniker on his name tag. <laughs> his would say zealot. It's a pretty good conversation starter, right? What are you zealous about? Well, there were four main religious movements during Jesus' time. Many of you would be familiar with the Pharisees. They're the most well-known because Jesus encounters them the most. These are the religious leaders who were most fastidious about the law. They're the guardians of Judaism. The second group that often interacted with the Pharisees, even though they were very different, were the Sadducees. These were the religious liberals. They had the wealth, and they held the positions of uh, an aristocrat. 
in the society. The third group is less well-known, the Essenes. Some of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls are attributed to this separatist group that no longer wanted to live in the culture, which they thought was going to hell in a handbasket, and they thought the way to serve God was to go out into the desert and live in the hills. And again, if you've traveled to Israel, you know that those caves are well-documented, where the Essenes lived, copied the scriptures, and tried to live away from the pollution of the world. Well, the fourth group is the group that Simon's a part of. Under the guise of Judaism, the zealots were political terrorists. In the true sense of the word that we understand it, in the religious terrorists of our day. So Simon is a part of this group that hated the Romans, and their sole goal was to overthrow the Romans' occupation. Unlike the Pharisees, who were willing to compromise their religious beliefs for political reasons, the Zealots would not do that at all, because they were militant, they were violent, and like today's terrorists, they used subversive acts of resistance and murder to continue to be a thorn in the side of the occupying Romans. And Josephus, the well-known Jewish historian, records that most of the zealots were the ones that went to Masada. Again, if you haven't studied Masada, this is well-documented in Jewish history. It was the last outpost in AD 70, when the Romans tried to clamp down on these terrorists, and they all scampered up to Masada to hold out. And they did for quite some time. But finally, the Romans overcame even that last group, and the zealots were no more. This is a person that Jesus invites to the inner circle. Put up the graphic, if you would. I love to think about this, because... Again, we don't know a lot about Simon, but simply the fact that his identity is as a zealot, it puts him in the same group of 12 as Matthew. Two guys on the opposite end of how to approach the politics of their day. One's a terrorist. One is a well-known tax collector that looks pretty good, except to the Jew Because he's taxing his own people, and they know he's getting paid by the Romans. My goodness, what the conversation must have been like between Simon the Zealot and Matthew. And Jesus says, hey, we're going to hang out together and all get along. I love it, man. How many of us have not felt that tension in the last three years? In the church as well. This is not just a societal problem right now in our country. This is a problem within the church. And Jesus says, hey, I orchestrated this idea. You two guys are going to learn to get along. Man, I wish we had more written about that, those encounters. But here's what I do know. Is that in the book of Acts, Luke who records this initial listing of Simon the Zealot, 
He lists him again when he lists the disciples following Jesus' ascension. And I can only surmise that that means that Simon didn't cut and run when he realized that Jesus was not going to give him all the political ambitions that the zealots had. I'm sure there were zealots that said, forget Jesus, he was crucified and he is gone. And he did not fulfill what we have so strongly burning in our soul. And Simon the Zealot, for whatever reason, stayed with the disciples through the ascension, saw the fulfillment of a risen Christ who is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And now, Simon gets it. Well, what was his problem with his identity? It's obvious. His tying his own identity and the zealous nature. What a great word. The zealous nature of believing that that passion was going to lead to a brand new day for the Jews. Now, I'm sure the words echoed in his mind. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. If you have married a political ideology with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must repent of a false hope and identity and seek first his kingdom. One of the churches I served in the late 90s here in Bellingham, a couple came to our church. The husband didn't attend, but his wife did. She was in her mid-60s at the time. And as most visitors, I, I called her up, offered to meet with her, and she took me up on the offer. And she came into my office, and we got to know each other. They were moving to Bellingham from, uh, from the East Coast. And she explained to me that now she and her husband were retired but that the driving force in her life was political activism. And she expressed to me that she was at the civil rights riots and demonstrations in the 60s, that she demonstrated for women's liberation. Uh, She demonstrated against the Vietnam War. And as she grew into the 80s, a lot of those uh, uh, movements centered around getting rid of nuclear energy, as many of you my age would remember. And basically, she was chronicling a life of activism. And in her humility, she sat in my office and she said, Pastor, after all that, my life is hollow. All of those causes were a house of cards. They gave me All kinds of of zealous energy, if you will, because who doesn't want to believe in something that we have a chance to change the world that we hear so often? And yet in her humility, I will always remember her saying, I'm interested in what you're preaching. Well, the short version is she did accept Christ, had the privilege of baptizing her. And about 10 years ago, I got a call from her husband, because she was at the hospice house here in Bellingham. 
And he asked if I would come and anoint her and pray for her. These are the great moments for pastors. When we get to see it in this life, the change that Jesus can make in a person. She was a Simon the Zealot. And she lived long enough to see a risen Christ who was ascended and, as I said, is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So as we close this morning, I just want to summarize three very different encounters with Jesus, three very different personalities, three very different identities, and yet all had spiritual dullness, all had spiritual apathy, all were seeking their identity somewhere else. There's many places that you can go in the Gospels. It's a fascinating study. So I challenge you to look at the encounters that Jesus had and say, what is the identity question here? What is Jesus really getting at as they're trying to put this vision of who they are? You could choose the rich young materialist, the rich young ruler I call him. Jesus pointed out, it's all about money and power for that guy. We mentioned Matthew. Jesus put his finger. You're a two-faced person, looking good to your Jewish friends and yet putting money out the back door to serve yourself with the Romans. And so the question is the same that Jesus asked the man at the well to all of us. Do you, do I, want to get well? Even after all these years of following Jesus, I can fall back and define myself by the markers that will never go away. All the markers I mentioned at the beginning of the, the service, those are pretty benign. And so the question isn't whether these are uh, sinful things, it's what we do with them. Are they in first position for you? Or have you made a decision at some point with subsequent hundreds and hundreds of decisions to say, I will not be defined by all of the things the world wants to define me by. It's what we sang at the beginning of the service. I am a child of God. I am a son or a daughter of the king. And all the other identity markers that you claim, those need to be in secondary spots. So three points to close. The first one, we no longer put our identity markers at the center. They're not going to go away, as I said, but they're no longer the center of who we are. One place to look for the scripture is 1 Corinthians 6.11. Such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I love the fact, he's he's listing a whole group of people at the Corinthian church, and he's saying, wait, 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 wait. You're no longer identified by all those things, and some were pretty heinous sins. But he calls them out, and he says, look, you're no longer that person. Live according to the Spirit of God that is in you now. 
The fancy word is sanctification, the lifetime process that won't just stop in this life, but that will continue in eternity as God continues to refine us and truly make us our true selves. Number two, we now belong to someone else when we put Christ at the center. We are not our own, and that's what the the apostle writes, same chapter in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I love to point out when I officiate weddings at the exchange of the ring, I say to two individuals who had been happily cruising along in life as individuals, I say, you guys are making a choice here, and this ring is a symbol that you're no longer your own. Every time you look at this, I want you to think about, yeah, as a single person, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to go, okay. I belong to somebody else. That makes a difference. It makes all the difference in the world in a marriage relationship. And spiritually, it makes all the difference in the world when we try to maintain an identity in Jesus Christ at the center. And lastly, it's what we've been trying to say. We find our true identity and the self that you have always wanted. Just like these encounters. All of the longings, looking for love in the wrong places, and Jesus says, the living water was here all along. One of my favorite summary verses in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Paul took it so far in his own understanding that he says, I no longer live, it's Christ living in me. The life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. What a great summary statement. And so as I close, regardless of where you're at, I'm assuming many of you have been on a journey of following Jesus for a long time. But the question remains, will I continue to say, Jesus, I need your healing? And so this morning, I remind you, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, this is not to belittle ourselves and to lower ourselves. It's to make God glorious and appealing and to give him the glory that was never due us, but that will always be due to him. Would you bow your heads with me for a closing prayer?